Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 1st. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. We have a resolution to this week's Waiver Palooza. Thank you to Artie Moreno and the Angels for putting so many interesting players available through waivers. It was a big waiver week, Keith. I didn't see it coming. It was a big giveaway, right? <laughs> it was a big giveaway. You got anybody? I tried to claim uh, Harrison Bader. I need some help in center field. Need a good defensive center fielder, and uh, the Reds uh, have been a little worse than me this year, so they had priority. So that's true. We have destinations for a lot of players. The Guardians. The Guardians ended up with Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and Matt Moore for nothing. Yep. Two good relievers. Two very good relievers. And a starter who has really been struggling during his time with the Angels wasn't pitching as well as he pitched in previous seasons with the White Sox before Mm -hmm. going to the Angels. Let's just start with Giolito. I mean, clearly the Guardians need a veteran to chew up innings at a minimum, even in the wake of letting Noah Syndergaard go. Their track record with pitching is very good over the past decade or so. What do you think they're going to get from Giolito over the final month of the season, given what we've just seen over the course of August from him? With the angels yeah see that's the thing i'm i'm looking at august as kind of a pretty small sample um first of all where also he faced three really good offenses in five starts right he faced atlanta and got bombed uh he faced texas and was not great and then he faced the phillies i was actually at that game with friends a very rare occasion where i'm actually at a at a baseball game and not working although of course they did go up the line just to get a better look at nolan chanuel um you know, I think that was another one where Giolito actually probably pitched a little bit better than the line set at the end. Um, and there were definitely some little pitch selection questions that I had, but I think he it was one of those. He kind of deserved a little bit of a better fate than he got there. Um, also, the Phillies are a really good lineup with a good bit of power. So you know, I look at, like I said, I, it's, it's a month. It's five starts with a little bit of a skew in the quality of competition he was facing. I think Giolito is better than that. He was better than that the four months prior to the trade to the Angels. I think the stuff points to him being a little bit better. I would expect a better result from, I mean, God, he had a near seven ERA while he was with the Angels and became like suddenly way more homer prone. I'm not buying that. I think he'll be better with the Guardians, even if it's just a matter of regression to kind of his own mean, his own true talent level. So for me, um, I love it for the Guardians. I can't believe that they did that. The Guardians are actually taking on, granted, a relatively meager amount of money in baseball terms, but they're taking on money. Good job. 
they can use this as an example of see we take on cash we, we take, take on, on cash mm-hmm. we'll, we'll spend five games behind the twins right now as a play begins on thursday so easily a, a gap that can be closed in a month no doubt about that if you're a twins fan you're kind of frustrated by the state of things i, I wonder do you think the waiver trade deadline back when we had that system was actually better than players just being freely available by the you know standings order with tiebreakers that we have now? Like, was the old system actually better? Um, I preferred it. That I think that ultimately, yeah, I never quite understood why Major League Baseball opposed it. There are things for the players right and i don't really know or want to speak for the players considerations like look at what just happened with giolito and lopez right you just got bounced from chicago to anaheim to cleveland and they had basically no say in the matter like that's not great i understand players and the union want to have a system where players have a little more input on where they're getting to go play obviously these guys are free agents this winter and then they will get that say so i'm not saying they have no agency but they you know in this particular case right they just got shuttled around like property and that's not good uh i like the old system i thought the whole waiver thing was just kind of annoying that you had to get guys through waivers and then people would be reporting on them and i remember when i was at front office there was like a hundred thousand dollar fine to the team if you ever leaked any information on who was on waivers or who got through waivers i was like this is stupid that's really arcane (laughs) what are we why this is not player friendly and it's not fan friendly maybe just make the trade deadline a little later uh august 15th or something like i don't know why the trade deadline has to be as early as it is I think it's exciting. It's a good thing for baseball. Anything we do that generates a lot of interest, like, for example, a lot of trades happening at the same time, that gets a lot of people excited and a lot of chatter going. And that, to me, is a bit of a lost opportunity that they do it early. I mean, we get some attention, but doing it later might lead to bigger trades because more teams, by the later you go in the season, the more teams are willing to say, we're just, this isn't our year. And we're willing to do something. I mean, in different universe, should you know, the Angels, whatever, lose eight straight to start August to decide fine, we're trading Otani after all. Like we we miss out on that. I'd, I'm fine with one deadline. I wish it was later. Um, and this whole system, which is basically a non-trade trade, right, where the Cleveland just traded air <laughs> for three guys, it is it still amounts to a trade. That feels like we're just sort of circumventing the whole process, and that's that. None of that sits particularly well with me. Nothing against what Cleveland's doing; good for them. I think it's great. It's just this feels like we are now working around a process, working around a, a, a stricter rule that hey, if teams are just finding ways around this, maybe we need to find a different way to legislate this. Right. I think if you there's a couple things here. If you push the trade deadline too far back. How does that impact the teams trying to get future value? Giving up only one month of a player, prospect returns used to be better at the trade deadline than they are now, right? We don't see as many top 100 prospects get flipped now as we did 10 plus years ago. My question would be, if you move that deadline back, do those returns get even worse because you're getting upgrades for an even shorter period of time? Yeah, I don't know, because I think the price of trades, the returns in trades have gone down for totally different reasons. It's just the recognition that prospects and very young or or low service time big leaguers are worth so much more. That's just driven them down. And that's probably our new normal. 
will will there be slightly less return if it's august 15th rather than july 31st probably that would stand to reason flip side is one thing i never really quite understood is why does everybody just wait till the deadline why wouldn't you get aggressive? Like, wasn't was it CC Sabathia was traded to the Brewers? It was like early July, and it made a huge difference. I think I have the right trade where somebody sort of jumped early, and it really moved. It made a huge difference for the Brewers that year. Just getting two, three extra starts or or you know, twelve extra games for a position player—that's a huge difference. Why wouldn't you try to do that? So maybe the solution is. I don't know. I don't, actually, I don't know what the solution is because I don't really know what the obstacles are to doing a deal earlier other than maybe just more teams thinking we're still in it um, or lacking the urgency or pressure of a deadline. They're just not doing anything. Uh, they're not in, as inclined to do anything. I don't know. I would. There's no reason all the trades have to happen within 72 hours of the deadline. There's. If I were running a team that was contending and we have a pretty clear hole here, I'd at least try to be aggressive and go out and find somebody sooner. Maybe the point is other teams just aren't willing to sell at that point. I don't, I, I, I don't honestly know what's what, what the actual obstacle is and what the solution might be. I've wondered about that for a few years. The sooner you trade for that player, the longer the window is for them to have an impact to make your roster better. And we've seen year over year division races, wildcard races, Every playoff spot can come down to one game. So the sooner you act, the more likely it is that you're going to get the boost that you actually need. If you're the team trading players away, presumably you get a better return, right? You've got more teams to mm-hmm. deal with also, more, more teams that believe they're going to be a playoff team that year. So I think that's a good thing, too, from the perspective of the team that uh, is moving present talent for future value. Uh, July 7th, 2008 was the date of that CC Sabathia trade. I am certain, Keith, there is a bar somewhere in Milwaukee on July 7th that will give you free alcohol if you mention that trade on that day. <laughs> they celebrate that day. I'm sure of it. There's at least one. There has to be because that was a great mm-hmm. day in Brewers history. Probably one of the uh, most beloved players who spent less than a season in Milwaukee. It was great all-in push. Yep. As far as the Guardians twins go, if you're projecting it right now, a five-game lead is enough where you lean on the side of the twins, but Nothing's impossible. You look at the upcoming schedule. They meet up again next week for a three-game series in Cleveland. That's a Mm -hmm. pretty big series because I believe that's the last of their meetings for the rest of this season. So that's their best chance to just cut into that gap all at once without having to rely on other teams helping them out. Who do you take to win the AL Central? Do you take the Twins with the five-game lead in hand, even with these additions for the Guardians? Yeah, but hopefully this makes it close. Interesting. Right. I don't care which team ultimately wins. I'm picking the twins because that's just logical, right? With a five game lead with what 30 to play ish, that's just the safe bet. However, if this makes the division more interesting, great. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I don't want to see anybody coast to a division title. That's boring. I'm here for anything that makes the division races more interesting. We talked a lot about the NL Central getting more interesting with that Cubs Brewer series this week on the Thursday episode of this podcast. And I think The broader problem for the Guardians is very similar to the problem that the Brewers have. Brewers have more power. Guardians strike out less. They just don't score enough. And I think with all the additions they made, they still need another bat. Yeah. Of all the things you could have got, Randall Gritchick went unclaimed. They must not have thought Randall Gritchick would make them better compared to the guys currently in the depth chart. So I guess that's part of it, right? Like, I think their specific problem, because it's power, 
I actually think there's a case for it. Ordinarily, okay. in a vacuum, overall value, no. I don't think Randall Grichuk's that good, but I think he actually fills a need for them. So maybe that was a missed opportunity. I mean, he's kind of a platoon bat, right? It's basically what he's been for most of his career. It's a nice little career, actually, for a guy whose main claim to fame is that he's not Mike Trout. He's a guy who was picked one one spot before Mike Trout. Like, Grichuk was... I wasn't a big believer in Grichuk. He's outperformed my expectations, certainly. Um, you know, and he's turned into, look up, decent platoon bat. You know, not... Not very good versus righties, not absolutely hopeless, but more power. You need somebody to come in and give you a shot at a homer off a lefty. He's your guy. That's a tough guy to fit, right? That's just, you have, that's a very specific need. Maybe that's a better way to say it. You have to have a very specifically shaped, like he is a very specifically shaped peg and you need a specifically shaped hole to fit him into. And so that yes. could be why he, why he got through ultimately, why he got through waivers, I mean. Well, and I think the other aspect of this, if you're a Guardians fan, you say, yeah, we could have used power. You claimed three players. That means you have to move three players off of the roster. Like, that's actually oh, not yeah. easy to do for a team that's not bad. You know, I didn't even look at that. Have they announced? We're recording this. It's almost 2 o'clock Eastern on Thursday. Have they announced who they're taking off the 40 or possibly moving to the 60-day, which I guess temporarily removes a guy from the 40? Just to make room. They released Cindergard the other day, but I think that was to make room for somebody else, right? Right. They designated him for assignment to put Daniel Norris on the roster. I, I'm cheating. I had to call this up because I didn't know. <laughs> I definitely did not know this. And then the next day, designated Norris for assignment to call Gaddis up and then just release Cindergard, but he'd already been removed from the 40. So yeah, we're gonna have to see how many spots they're gonna have to move somebody off and i mean the, the guardians from having a pretty productive farm system the last several years have a lot of guys on the 40 who are not in the majors but they really can't slash shouldn't take off you know brian rocchio i think is a stud prospect jose tana has really come on the last couple of months started to look a lot more like the hitter he seemed to be two years ago when he made my top 100 and was one of the most exciting guys in fall league even though he was very young George Valera, a bit of the broad range of opinions, but definitely a prospect. Definitely not somebody you're just kicking off the roster. Right? These are not one Brito. They just got in the Nolan Jones trade. I'm mentioning these guys because they're 40-man guys who are not on the active roster. And so those are guys you can't just easily just take off their prospects. They're all got those spots are locked in, in addition to, you know, the vast majority of the guys in your major league roster are also not guys you're looking to kick off. I mean, I can look here and I can see a couple guys where, sure, you know, maybe you kick Hunter Gaddis off because you just called him up and you can, all right, well, he's one of the guys, these three pitchers are replaced. They're replacing three pitchers on the active roster. But this is a little bit of a 40-man crunch situation for Cleveland. I wonder if they just kind of thought, maybe we'll get one. I, like, you really would like to see the scene when their AGM gets the email. Like, um, guys, guys, we got three. We got everybody like good, but it's good. But now, yeah, it's like, oh, we didn't right? quite expect to get three. So right. now what what corresponding moves do we have? And sometimes you see guys shift to the 60 day IL. That could be maybe an option for somebody. So there's there are a few there's a few different paths to make the room. Is Quantrill still? I'm sorry. This is like such niche content here, but I also love this stuff. I and mean, it reminds me of 20 years ago, right? Trying to 
figure out who to put where. There is some small grace period. I, I'm not saying what it is because I don't remember. I'm sure it's different from when I was at the Blue Jays, but you don't have to put Giolito on the 40 man like the very minute, right? You have a you have a moment to yep. move some guys around. But yeah, I like I said, I this <laughs> But you got to be postseason eligible by getting on the roster before a certain deadline. Oh, that's true. Is there a person in every organization, like at least one, who is just solely focused on the machinations of the 40-man roster, the waivers, all all these rules? It's the AGM, usually? Usually, their job is to be the one managing that, at least to be the one to come and say, here are our options. All right, we need to call somebody up. Okay, this guy can go on the 60-day, or we could designate this guy for assignment. That is the person ostensibly the assistant GM is the one who who manages that part of the process and knows what's feasible and what the rules are. And Okay, this guy has to be activated by this time. Oh, Cal Quantrill, if we put him on the 60-day, but he'd actually be eligible to come off within a day um, because it would be actually technically if he went on, I think I read July 1st. No, I'm sorry, it's July 6th. So he couldn't do that. So my whole great idea actually doesn't mm-hmm. work. Say that he'd gone on July 1st, hypothetically. He could have gone on the 60-day just for 24 hours and been activated tomorrow because 60 days would have passed since the time. So you retroactively place him on the 60-day, um, retroactive to the date he actually went on the 15-day. He can still be activated 60 days from that point, which actually would have been yesterday if I'd gotten the date right. But I got the date wrong, so none of this actually matters. This is all extremely hypothetical. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. So people know that you are very into board games. Mm-hmm. What board game is most <laughs> like Major League Baseball's roster rules in terms oh of how God. complex the rules are? Oh, if you want complexity, I mean, I could start naming games I really don't like. <laughs> How about one that you do like, uh, but has yeah. about as many twists and turns as managing an MLB roster? There was one I played just a couple of months ago. I'm going to pick a new one just because it's been more interesting, but called Barcelona, which is from a publisher, actually a Polish publisher, Borden Dice, that that specializes in crunchier games, games that tend to take 90 minutes to two hours. They tend to be um, bigger boxes with heavier, physically heavier games in addition to being heavier weight. And that was another one where, you know, the better, I I don't mind longer games like that. Two hours about my max where I just start to like get dizzy and, you know, need to go (laughs) lie down. But the games like that, that really work generally require you to manage three or four different things your progress in three or four different areas zolkin which is t-z-o-l-k-i-n is another great heavier game like that where you're you're managing at least four different things and it's i always describe it as having a higher cognitive load right it's asking more of your brain to juggle these different things where you need some balance generally in those games you can't ignore any of those things but also you want to specialize a little bit say i'm going to get most of my points from doing this one 
thing. And the best games force you to make a lot of decisions like that. And so you spend the entire, you are thinking a lot during the entire game. Some people say that's not fun. And I completely understand that. It, I, I enjoy that because it's a challenge. It's a puzzle that can't ever be quite solved, but there is a winner. So that's something like solving the puzzle, but then generally makes me want to come back and do it again because I say, oh, I did this wrong or I could have done better in this particular area. Um, and it's the juggling, like the mental juggling part that I that I particularly enjoy. Um, but like I said, I recognize that's not for everyone. Those are often those are games I don't often recommend to readers because I know that's a that's a niche. That's a pretty small segment of at least my portion of my audience that's interested in my board game content. I have some of those. Some of you readers listen and, and enjoy those those longer, crunchier games, but I recognize that's not the majority of the audience. I just figured since we were talking about really in-depth roster stuff, made sense to get a game out there and because Cones of Dunshire has never actually been made, <laughs> we actually needed a real-life example. Uh, let's talk about the Reds for a bit. They added two outfielders, Harrison Bader uh, and Hunter Renfro. Bader made a lot of sense for them because defensively in center field, the Reds are one of those teams that have lagged in terms of what they're getting on that side. My question for you about Harrison Bader is, why hasn't it worked for him as a hitter? And even over the course of his career, you could just say, well, he's been hurt a lot. So what percentage of the playing time that he's been available for in his big league career has come at anything close to 100% health? So he's going from one hitter-friendly environment to a very homer-friendly environment in Cincinnati. Do you think there's still one more level for Harrison Bader at the plate or like the best versions of him offensively are still a possibility? Or do you think those days have passed? Like. I think those days have probably passed, but as you said, that ballpark does cure a lot of ills. I mean, it's just, it's tough. Like he is, he's a low on base guy. He just kind of always is. Wouldn't shock me if he put a few more balls in the seats. I mean, he did two years ago. He hit 16 homers in 103 games. He's not without power. He's not much of a hitter. It's so funny. He's so different than the player I thought he was at Florida, where he played left field and didn't look particularly good doing it. Um, when I saw him, at least, that was a year that Florida did have a first rounder. It was Richie Martin. Actually, wasn't Harrison Bader, but I think he's turned out to be the best player off that Florida roster. I was like, I think he can hit some, but he might be a tweener, right? Not really enough power for a corner, not the, certainly not the defense for center. And then within about, and certainly in less than two years in Pro Bowl, it was pretty clear, oh, no, this guy can really play defense. What the heck? Like. I just it's entirely possible I just missed because I saw him either one or two games. Not great for evaluating defense. Um I think he I also think he actually really got better in Pro Bowl, which happens a lot. And that's made his career. And the bat has been less than I expected. If you'd shown me his career stat line, a 399 slug, I would have said, come on, I think it's a little more bat than that. I didn't think he was a 30 homer guy, but I thought there was more, a little more sock than we've seen. And I mean, shoot, it's not like Yankee Stadium's a tough place to hit either. I wonder where he'll end up as a free agent this winter, because if you yeah. get him in the right org. Get some new coaches in his ear. Maybe they can find a way to get that out of him. But I think you could you can bring him in knowing that you're getting a Michael Taylor sort of player with less swing and miss. That's, and that's the thing. That's valuable to start. Like you already have a guy you can play, but you also have a guy that you could maybe tweak and, and get a little more from him. So I thought that was a pretty good claim for the Reds and, and oh, Renfro yeah, being there too. Renfro is not bad, but Hunter Renfro, Keith, has this profile that Major League teams – temporarily want Hunter Renfro and, and yeah, players right, like him, but they yeah. never, they never want Hunter Renfro on a multi-year deal, especially on the wrong yeah. side of 30s, 31 years old. Now I feel like 
Hunter Renfro has got one or two more stops in his big league career in the next two to three seasons. And mm-hmm. then Hunter Renfro is gone. Six team in six years, right? Yeah. Six team in actually just less than six years, which is in itself. Like, that's fine, right? That's, hey, if you're a big leaguer. That's awesome. And I, when I was a kid, I always enjoyed those baseball cards, right? Where it's a whole bunch of teams. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Either the the sort of beauty of the Cal Ripken, Tony Gwynn, who plays an entire career with one team. Mm-hmm. I remember Jim Cott's baseball card, which had the original, was the last, he was the last player from the original Senators to still be playing in the big leagues. I remember asking my mom, like, who, who are the Senators? And her explaining they became the Twins, et cetera. <laughs> like, it was, his was super interesting. Look at all these teams he's played for. You know, Renfro's having that kind of career just in miniature, right? He's doing it really fast. Um. And that's because you want to talk about a platoon guy. This is this is kind of who he's always been. It's when he was a prospect, this is who he really was. This guy can really hit lefties. And that's kind of it. Well, and he's, a, he's a very capable defensive corner outfielder, which teams don't really value that much unless you're elite. Um, but yeah, 282 on base against righties, 462 slug, which is not nothing. But still, you're kind of close to an automatic out against righties. 344 on base against lefties, 529 slug. That's a really good player. He's really useful when deployed correctly um and perfect as this waiver claim deadline deal guy right that is exactly the kind of guy you're looking to add because we're in the middle of the season we know our strengths and weaknesses this is a very clear hole in the roster that we need to address and renfro his skill set is quite specific it's more than great right broader platoon split than Gritchuk. He's better even against lefties. So as a sort of tactical player on the bench, platoon starter, it's very clear how best to use him. The other player that we know was claimed was Dominic Leone going back to Seattle, just adding some depth in that bullpen. Not a whole lot to dig into there. So we'll see if anybody else ends up with a a new home in the uh, remaining time that we're recording. It looks like Carlos Carrasco cleared waivers. Doesn't mean he won't end up on a new team. Just means if he's going to get there, it's going to be a release and then a team signing him and that limits uh, his eligibility for the postseason too, because it'll be after that deadline if it plays out okay. that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. We got some prospects to talk about. Uh, the Yankees—they're doing it. You thought maybe it was a bit of a rush job to bring up Jason Dominguez if they did it. He's coming up. They're getting real young, real fast. Actually, Austin yeah. Wells is coming up. Versus Pereira already up. So this is weird. It's it's not the Yankees team that anybody signed up for at the beginning of the season, but no. they're I, I think they're at least I think they're at least doing some I think they're doing it right in the sense that they're giving some guys a look that might have been kind of iffy for the beginning of twenty twenty four. Like you want to know what you have, and I think this is a better way to find out than letting these guys play in what is really a watered down triple a right now i think that would be the the best case for the more aggressive promotion it's hard to learn a lot about a player in this iteration of triple a yeah triple a sucks right now it's real bad yeah it's the caliber of competition seems to be pretty inconsistent right there are plenty of guys in triple a who are a good test um you know i do think for pitchers you are pitching to a lot of guys who've played in the big leagues at some point there's some there's certainly value in that the thing that we're seeing, we've talked about this a ton, right? With the challenge system in AAA, walk rates are up. And so that can be misleading, certainly, in trying to evaluate hitters or pitchers. So yeah, I, I wish it, it does seem like these moves were made without a lot of foresight, particularly Dominguez had been in AAA for what, less than two weeks? So not long. Not long. 
Certainly not long enough for it to matter. I mean, at that point, you could have just left him in double A, which makes me think probably two, three weeks ago, there wasn't a lot of thought to calling him up. And obviously things changed at the major league level. And that's fine. You can change your process. You can change your your plans. Um, but it doesn't look as thoughtful as you would like from a player development perspective, certainly. And so to me, um, you know, I don't think Jason Dominguez is ready to hit in the big leagues. I think Jason Dominguez is going to be a star. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he struggled or if he's good for you know a week or two and then the league starts to adjust and then he struggles after that and he has to turn around and make adjustments and that's fine that's part of players developing but in at least what we saw with dominguez over the course of this season you could really trace it even back into last season continuous improvement which i'm a big big fan of you know i think when you see continuous improvement in a player um you know, particularly when scouts back it up and say we're seeing adjustments from the player, that's kind of one of the most positive things you can see um, from a again from a development perspective. Where and, and it's a like a very positive indicator going forward. He will be able to continue to make adjustments. Generally, players who have made adjustments are able to continue making adjustments uh, going forward. And I particularly seen that with Dominguez more than I've seen that with Pereira, much more than I've seen that with Wells. Wells is very limited. He may be a platoon guy. I really don't think he can catch on more than a backup or emergency basis. Dominguez is the one who's, he's exciting. Like, I think that guy's, I do think he's going to be a star. I think he's going to play center. He's going to play it well. He's going to hit for some power eventually, maybe not right away. Uh, he's going to get on base at a good clip and he's going to steal a bunch of bags. He may end up striking out a little more than you'd like but i mean that's also the game today too so that seemed that's kind of a specious complaint a couple weeks ago we suggested ronnie mauricio might get a look with the mets that's actually going to happen makes all the sense in the world given what he was doing yeah. at triple a this year uh as far as the development curve for ronnie mauricio against top level pitching do you think we're going to have any issues like you talked about with dominguez where there's a lot of swing and miss at least initially because we haven't seen we haven't seen a lot in terms of walks from Ronnie Mauricio. So I just wonder, is it a is it a hit tool that can hit everything and, and sort of get away with not working walks? Or is it a problematic approach, at least initially? He's really interesting because obviously I like players who show real play discipline, right? Right. I want to see guys who show the ability to recognize balls and strikes to recognize pitch types so that they make better swing decisions. Ultimately, this is all in service of better swing decisions. So in Mauricio's case, he's in that school of he's a bit of a bad ball hitter. Like he, he doesn't swing and miss in the zone very much. So it's not an inability to put the bat on the ball. It might almost be too much of an ability to put the bat on the ball because he's so capable of making contact with uh on different on pitches out of the zone i mean he's got a really i don't know i don't have like a leaderboard which would be certainly be helpful in this situation but i don't see a lot of players who can go out of zone that often and still make this much contact and he does is that trick work in the big leagues it's tough to hit when it's 99 with high spin up at your eyes right at some point he's probably gonna have to not swing at those pitches but for now it, you know, that's it, kind of how he's had success is that pitchers can't just easily expand the zone on him kind of with impunity. They, they do actually have to make better pitches and you can get that ball. It's a little bit out of the zone and kind of do something with it. It's also entirely possible to get to the big leagues and those pitches that he could square up well enough 
in, du- in double and triple A, especially, he's not going to be able to square up in the big leagues. He'll make contact, but it'll be bad contact. He'll make contact and it'll be foul contact. So I'm not trying to oversell. I think he's interesting. This is, this is a type of player you don't generally see me say great things about. I've also seen Mauricio a lot. I have a decent amount of history with him, and I think he has a chance to be an exception. And, you know, I could be totally wrong. Somebody said Keith Law compared him to Alfonso Soriano. This was in a an athletic comment thread under his call-up. He said, I said that's who he could be, right? That's kind of a best-case scenario. That's what that player looks like, and he does have things about his bat speed and his wrist strength that remind me of Soriano. I'm not saying he's going to be Soriano. That would be great. I don't actually think that's where this is going. Like, I think that's, you know, he's probably going to be a little bit less. I hope I'm right and he turns into Soriano because I want all players to be good. And I think that you want to get a picture of what it looks like if it works out with Mauricio. That's your archetype. And age to level gives his performances more of a boost, right? He's been young everywhere he's played, which makes the overall package more impressive. I think there's a, a conversation with Mauricio just about hit tool. I think hit tool would be really hard to put a grade on Keith for a whole bunch of the reasons that you just discussed with Mauricio, right? So if a player has great bat speed and makes below average swing decisions, but finds a way to hit pitches they shouldn't be able to hit, does that mean they have a good hit tool, an average hit tool? Like even backing up further, what goes into your evaluation of a hit tool? How does it all kind of come together? How do you come up with a final grade for something that has a lot of moving parts in it? You said before we started recording, that might be the hardest tool. And I I think it is. Of everything that I'm ever asked to evaluate, that scouts are asked to evaluate, I think the hit tool is the hardest one. Even if you're just talking about present hit tool, let alone talking about future hit tool, which is its own challenge, of course. Uh, It is very hard to evaluate. And part of it is this sort of ontological question of what what is a hit tool? What actually do we mean when we're talking about evaluating a hit tool? And that's, again, that's not, it's not easy, right? We don't necessarily agree on what we mean by a hit tool by, or is it just the ability to put the bat on the ball? Is it the ability to make hard contact, which obviously is something we, we do really want. Um, but at the same time, we all have also learned that just making hard contact is in and of itself not really enough. So I think personally, what I'm looking for is some combination of all of these things. And that makes it a little bit, certainly makes it subjective and feel a little bit nebulous that, you know, what what exactly do we mean by, um, by uh, he's a good hitter, he can hit. You know, I often just use that expression, right? Oh, this guy, he can really hit. That to me means he's got some of all of these things or enough of a combination of these things that he's going to be able to make consistent, high quality contact. There's a couple ways to get there. You can be a super disciplined hitter who kind of only hit swings at strikes, maybe only makes medium quality contact. You can be a little bit of a less disciplined hitter, but you make enough contact and the contact you make is really high quality. So even if whether you hit over the fence or you're hitting a bunch to the gaps, there's a bunch of different ways to go about that too. There are quite a few options. There are quite a few possibilities for that to profile for you to profile as a an above average or plus hitter in time. So it's there are a lot of ways to go about it, and I prefer to keep it very open. I prefer to be open minded myself 
because of experience of recognizing guys do find different ways to become really good hitters. Jeff McNeil is a good example of a guy I kind of underrated. I definitely underrated, very clearly underrated. He doesn't fit an easy profile. The way he gets to it, and he used to get to it, obviously he's not doing it as much this year at all, but the way he was able to get to that is not unique, but a lot less common. And those outlier players are the hardest ones to evaluate as a as a class. Chris Sale was a tough one for me, um, and one I got very wrong. And you know, if I'd been writing about Alfonso Soriano back in the day, I probably would have been wrong on him too. Um, I remember with the Blue Jays, we weren't big fans because he seems so undisciplined. And it's why I see a player like Mauricio. I'm like, wait a second. I've seen someone sort of like this before, and I need to be more open-minded about it. Yeah, I think it's it's a moving target. It's like the things that one guy should swing at are probably different than the things another guy should swing at mm-hmm. because of, of your ability, right? Your your ability to cover different corners of the strike zone effectively. If you can drive pitches on the outside edge the opposite way, that's probably a good idea. If mm-hmm. you can't, you probably shouldn't swing at those pitches. You should probably work <laughs> the count and try to get something you can drive. Like, so I think that's that's another like just each player's core skills as a hitter vary and then the eye you should have needs to fit what you can do bat to ball and Mm -hmm. there's such a wide range of things a group of players could do bat to ball that your plate discipline and my plate discipline and the plate discipline of these other guys over here it varies based on just how good we are bat to ball but do you think the scale in general or even just the hit tool as a tool needs to be broadened out it should it be more than one thing should i be separated should your your strike zone discernment be separated from the bat to ball and the contact quality things that people might be looking for contact quality does show up in the form of game power raw power right it kind of gets into those categories but just judging balls and strikes as a hitter almost seems like it's its own thing yes and most teams that i know of do somehow separate eye plate discipline whatever you want to call it and to me that can come down to strike zone judgment and to um or ball strike recognition versus pitch recognition those are two separate skills you can really know balls from strikes but have trouble picking up spin for example so i also try to be you know fairly open-minded about you know, when we're talking generally about plate discipline or, or just get more specific ultimately and say, you know, I'm talking about this one very clear thing. But most teams I know of do at least try to separate that out. And to me, there's there's hit, there's power, and then there's I. And those, I think, should generally be broken out kind of as three separate things. Um, they are separate skills to me. And the combination of them is important. But you can go about it a lot of different ways. So, you know, many teams, there are teams that don't really use pro scouts, for example, anymore because they're just choosing to do it off of off of data, um, which I think is a huge failure. It's how teams miss on it's how a lot of people online who just have access to data and don't scout, don't know how to scout, they just pull up trackman data where it's available and then try to make judgments off of that. And you're missing a tremendous amount of context. But that data is also useful. Uh, and where do you count that? All right, his, you know, just to pick one, exit velocity is not a complete story, but say that you have a guy who posts pretty consistently high exit velocities. His max exit velocity or his 90th percentile exit velocities are are excellent, say. Where does that fit? Great hit tool? Is that power? 
I don't think that's necessarily the same thing as power because, right, if you're hitting like this versus the right, you're long, your angle off the bat. That's a huge difference. Can you hit for those high exit velocities, but also put the ball in the air on enough of a line that it's likely to get out of the park and not be like a really well hit F9, for example? It's not easy to separate these things into buckets. And I get away with this a little bit more because I'm less concerned about grades and much more concerned about telling the story of the player because I get to work just in pros. Also, I never actually have to sign or trade for anybody. So the stakes are a little bit lower. That definitely helps. <laughs> yeah, uh, that definitely makes it easier. Yeah. I just think it, it, it's it's a great question. I apologize for going on and on a little bit about it, but it because it's an interesting one that I've I have grappled with my whole career. What do we really mean? Am I telling you, whether it's who I'm working for or telling the readers, am I telling you enough about the player? Do you have a complete picture, a complete enough picture? And do you have a sense of what the potential variance in outcomes is too? It's very easy to say, this guy's got a plus hit tool. All right, what does that mean? Is he going to hit 320, 300? Nobody hits 320 anymore, except our IS, right? So, but what am I saying? Look, nobody's, no, no player is that they're not robots, right? You cannot look at any player and just say, this is what he's going to be. There's a range of outcomes. So expressing that also as part of it, which no, there's no grading system I know of that really gets to that. I know teams that have a separate box on the scouting or point that is essentially variance, variability, probability, you know, what, what, how, you know, I always refer to these guys as high beta, which is a term from the finance world, like a lot of variance in potential outcomes. That's important too. I think this guy, I think Ronnie Mauricio could actually turn out to be a really good hitter. He could also be awful. There's a lot of room there. You know, whereas Jackson Holiday, he's I think Jackson Holiday's gonna turn out to be a really good hitter. And I don't think there's much range in potential outcomes. If he's anything less than a really, really good hitter, I will be extremely surprised. Yeah, it's funny because when you have a much, much larger group of, of people you know in the scouting space, but even the few people I know, they'll use that expression. You can flat out hit. And I just think yeah. of like Jose Altuve, like Luis Arias might be the the least powerful version of that player, but they're, yeah. they're very different. Even as two guys that make a ton of contact, they do very different things as hitters. So that description, it's lacking, right? And I don't think it's meant to be the be-all, end-all, but I just think it's a it's a really strange bucket to put a player in. It's like, well, what else can he do? He could flat out hit, but does he, does he hit it in the yeah. air? Does he hit it on the ground? Does he hit yeah. it all over the place? You know who is supposed to be that guy? Nick Madrigal, his right. advocate, he was picked fourth in the draft, which I thought was a reach. It was more of a reach than I realized, but I thought it was a reach. I thought he was like a mid-first rounder. And I thought he was a mid-first rounder. The guy puts the bat on the ball at, at exceptional rates. That's something. Doesn't necessarily mean a plus hit tool, but that is something. That's an actual skill. Now, it turns out he makes some of the weakest contact out of anybody. And it's sort of like scared me off to some extent of Jacob Wilson in this year's draft, where Wilson's a little bit of a bigger human, but still super high contact rates, very low contact quality. That player type has a hard time these days. Did Nick Madrigal have or project to have a plus hit tool with absolutely top of the line contact rates that have largely continued in the big leagues? He can still put the bat on the ball. It's like he's swinging a wet newspaper. Is that a good is that a good hit tool? Is that a 50, 55, 60? And that's or or is that a guy where everybody was just wrong? I mean, certainly the White Sox were wrong taking him fourth overall. They passed on some pretty good players in that draft. But I'm talking about in, in general. Even people like me who weren't big Nick Madrigal fans who said, guy's kind of a twerp, right? And I, I say that as a twerp myself. So it's fine. I'm allowed to. But where did this go awry is the question. 
And, you know, to me, that comes back to, in my opinion, at least, I mean, I'd be curious what you think as somebody who follows this stuff. To me, it's like, no, actually, he just wasn't, that, that just wasn't that good of a hit tool. Probably should have been like, it's more of an average hit tool. It's really high contact, but at the cost of all contact quality, that doesn't play anymore. Right. So at the other end of the, the other end of the strikeout rate spectrum among hitters, Nick Madrigal mm-hmm. has a 9.1% K rate, which is fantastic in a vacuum, right? Oh, you're going to strike out 9.1% of the time. That's great. Yeah. But at the other end, you get guys, Patrick Wisdom a few years ago, just staying in the same organization with K rates well north of 30%. And people say, that's just too much swing and miss. That's not going yeah. to work. And generally, it doesn't. But if you get to the power enough, the risk is worth the reward. The, the donuts are, are worth the actual payoff when he connects. And I also wondered too, how much you can reasonably expect a player to improve and then sustain improvement with K rate over time. We saw a bit of a dip in the K rate last year for wisdom got down from North of 40% in 2021 down to 34.3. You can sort of live with 34.3 and now he's kind of tracking back into the high thirties, right? So to me, it's just like, there's a point where the lines intersect. You can have this much swing and miss if you do this much damage and you can avoid whiffs at an elite level if you do just a little bit of damage and Nick Madrigal doesn't even do a little bit of damage. It doesn't help you. There's, there aren't enough ways, even without the strikeouts. You're not doing enough when you put the ball in play because you hit him on the ground, you hit it so softly, it's still not a hit. It's just it's right. an out a different way. It, it's, it's with less certainty that it's an out compared to a strikeout, but not by as much as you'd think. And I wonder how much of, of the Madrigal... Do you think there were... Were there more old school scouts that looked at Nick Madrigal and, and had sort of some, hey, this worked in the 70s and 80s and 90s. There were players like this before. Maybe it can work again. Was was there some of that going on because it was such an extreme contact yeah. heavy profile, like trying to retrofit an old profile into the modern game? I think so. Personally, I also wonder when players like this come along and I I've experienced this firsthand, not firsthand, meaning I've heard it firsthand, seen it firsthand in my career. Not that people articulate this explicitly, but it's like, hey, this guy reminds me of me when I was a player. Ah, that's never good, right? Well, it doesn't work anymore. Players don't look like that, right? If you meet guys who played in the big leagues in the 80s and 90s, many of them would look out of place in a, in a locker room in 2023. Right? That just the size of players in Major League Baseball has changed pretty dramatically. Even I would just say in the 20 years since I've been in the industry. Certainly since if you go back to the 80s, I always think of those Whitey Herzog Cardinals teams, right? Where they were smaller guys who put the ball in play and ran like crazy. And they got to, what, three World Series in six years by doing a lot of that. So that just, I don't think that formula works that well anymore. So another player that was recently promoted, Sedan Rafaela, has, I think, similar questions to Ronnie Mauricio, just in terms of the hit tool. Is the hit tool going to be good enough for everything else to come together? So I, I'm just curious, what's your overall assessment of Rafaela, and do you think he's actually going to find a way to hit top-level pitching? Yeah, he is a, he's another one with that sort of bad ball. He certainly chases out of his own. I don't think he has quite the same contact on pitches out of the zone ability as Mauricio, but I think Rafael has 
a better athlete, a faster player, a twitchier player. He can pl- absolutely play center field like that. He could come up right now and play center field every day, for the rest of the season and help the Red Sox. Like that is to me, that is going to carry him a very long way. Even if he never really develops that much as a hitter, he'll have a decent career as a guy who can play center and really run. I think there's potential in the bat. He does hit the ball harder than you expect for a guy who's not very big or physical. Um, He's got bat speed. He's athletic. There's a lot to like. He's going to have to work some on his pitch selection. I don't think he's undisciplined necessarily, but I think he's a guy where those pitches you were able to hit or maybe just spoil in double and triple A, maybe not so much in the big leagues. There might be an adjustment where he's just got to shrink his personal strike zone in, in or I guess personal swing zone pitches he's choosing to swing at. I'll be curious to see what adjustments he makes or, or does he prove me wrong and show he can still get to some of those pitches out of the zone and hit them hard enough for to, to be able to get on base. Yeah. I think that's going to be key for Sedan Rafaela and that the best thing is being able to play up the middle. It affords you so much more, development time yep. if the bat is slow to come around too so i think that that bodes well because you are helping in one facet of the game while you kind of work on uh you know, the final adjustments you have to make to be a good big league hitter uh, the red sox also brought up willier abreu recently i'm just kind of curious what you think about abreu as the guy that they picked up i believe in the christian vasquez trade that they made with the astros uh last year so it's been a little while since he's been in the organization. Put up really big numbers at AAA. We've been ragging on AAA all season. The thing that mm-hmm. I think is kind of interesting, aside from the power, right? The 22 homers in 86 games, consistently good hard contact from Willier Abreu. So do you see him fitting in somewhere on that Red Sox or in that outfield mix? Like, what, where do you think he is long term? I mean, you got to give this guy a shot, right? I know he's a little older, but he's actually produced really well for, what is it, three years now? Really, since the pandemic it's three very credible years in at three different levels in the minors um now Asheville two years ago in 21 that's a great place to hit so fine if you want to throw that one out fine but he's hit really well in the last two years in three different environments and I will tell you scouts hate this guy <laughs> like I really just do not get good <laughs> scouting reports on him at all and I've seen him it's not terribly impressive to watch but at some point don't you have to just say Give him a shot, right? Just see what it is. If this guy's conti- he's making a lot of contact, he's making good contact, good quality contact. He's showing some power. Actually, this year he showed a lot more power. And he's getting on base. Like he's disciplined. He's drawing a ton of 114 walks last year. We're past the point where teams just dismiss those players entirely. I get it. I know what scouts are saying. I've seen it myself. At some point, you just have to say, let him hit, let him try. Give him a shot and give let try him out on something, you know, give him regular playing time and see what happens and see how he responds to pitchers, how pitchers respond to him and and what it looks like that over a long and longer period of time, especially if you're trying to build. We are past the point where nobody but Oakland would give those guys a shot. I mean, I feel like that's not that long ago where it's like, oh, the A's will just take that guy as a six-year free agent or pick him up in the rule five, and then he'll turn out to be better than anyone expected because. Scouts as a group, the consensus among scouts was he wasn't any good, but the guy kept putting up productive numbers, putting up production. Yeah, I'm not a big Will Urabray you guy myself, but I acknowledge that's almost two full years of really good production that deserves a chance in the majors. Like, go for it, let him play, 
And, you know, hopefully he keeps doing what he was doing the last two years in double and triple A. One more question for you. This comes from the pitching side. We're seeing Ryan Pepio make a bit of an impact for the Dodgers. Missed a ton of time with an oblique injury earlier yeah. this season. The thing that's standing out to me in the very limited sample between AAA and the big leagues this season, it's 36 and two-thirds innings. It's a much improved walk rate, right? The mm-hmm. knock on Ryan Pepio, level the levels, when he walks too many guys. When would you start to trust it? Are you there yet? Do you need to see it for another month or a half season? How long do you have to go before you start to say the control problems we've seen in the past are less of a concern going forward? I mean, the control problems are kind of forever, right? Since he was in college, even, um, where he's had issues with with walks. What I have not loved from what I've seen from him in the big leagues so far is if he's in the zone, it's a lot of middle-middle, and that's going to get hit. It hasn't. He hasn't been punished much for it so far but and his fastball's got quality to it but if you're middle middle you're going to end up giving up a lot of hard contact over time i'm less concerned that he's still basically a two-pitch guy he throws a handful of sliders i mean so far in his couple of big league starts it's almost it's like 80 something percent fastball and changeup, and it's a knockout changeup. it's going to be one of the best changeups in baseball but he is going to have to show that he can command even just those two pitches to the exterior of the strike zone and not be so middle middle. I I look at pitchers like this and and worry that it's Ryan. You got to throw more strikes. Okay, right down the middle. Okay, that's fine as long as you're not getting punished for it. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. I have a feeling that if he continues to pitch like that, he is going to start giving up a lot more hard contact, and that's on him to make the adjustment. Can you pitch to the perimeter? rather than living in the heart. It's not like you can never throw to the heart of the zone, and he probably can throw some to the heart of the zone, more than a typical pitcher because those two pitches are so good. But he's going to have to show that he can work around or within the strike zone without being in the, the you know, sort of if you do the, what is it, the three-by-three three grid, he's in the middle. He's in zone five. That's not good. He's a guy who could probably live quite well in two and eight, right? Above and below. And I mean, he can move left and right. That's I'm not saying he can. But fastballs in two and change-ups in eight or below – Probably a pretty good, like very dumb, like oversimplified pitching plan for him. But I could see that working, actually. So not saying I don't like Pepio. He's a prospect. He's always been a prospect. He's going to be something in the big leagues. I need to see a lot more from him in terms of this is like control over command, right? You throw him more strikes. He's actually not in the zone that much, despite the walk rate, at least in the big leagues. He's getting a lot of chase. That's fine. That works. And I think he will continue to get chase. You're going to have to show me you can stay out of that heart of the zone to believe that, yeah, you're a different pitcher now and you're long term. So I question whether he's going to be a starter with that kind of command and control trouble. All right. If he irons it out, he could stay in the back of that rotation. He's got the number five spot right now. Tony Gonsolin down for the season. Walker Bueller still trying to work his way back. So <sighs> we'll get yeah. another month's worth of, of starts potentially to see where things go. And I wonder, too, if... We'll get a story eventually, hopefully, from Fabian Ardaya, our Dodgers writer, just digging into you know, if this continues. How did it happen? Do they do they give him fewer targets? And, and to me, like that'd be the why is he missing middle middle? Well, maybe they're trying one target and mm-hmm. he's hitting that one target, and you have to kind of adjust that approach a little bit because that's going to be problematic if he does keep living uh, in that part of the strike zone. We are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder, you can get a subscription to The Athletic, $1 a month for the first year. Gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash baseball show on Twitter or X as it's now known. You can find Keith at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend in the States. We're back with you next week. 